Good morning. My name's Tim. It's great to be with you. I have been here before, so I recognise many faces. Uh, thanks for being here. I know it's school holidays, um, which I presume means summer away, enjoying some time, uh, but we're here. If you have a Bible, it'd be terrific to have it open at Genesis chapter 5 and 6, page 4 in the uh, church Bibles. I wonder if you're like me, um, you hate chaos, but it happens, doesn't it? Sometimes life is just chaotic. Chaos, I guess, is when things bleed into each other so that the normal distinctions, work and play and home and meals, just sort of disintegrate and it just becomes chaotic. Um, uh, sometimes our houses become chaotic. What should be in the cupboards or on the floor, what should be on the floor is outside or the dog's eaten it or, or something and it all falls apart. It, when, when floods happen, that's sort of chaos, isn't it? What should stay in its banks, the creeks, the rivers, overflow their banks. They break out and everything gets chaotic. Now, I don't think it's just OCD people who don't like chaos. Uh, it, it's most of us. There are certain sorts of chaos that really bug us. I won't mention politics. When God created the world, part of what he did was create order out of chaos. If you've read Genesis chapter 1, God separates the light from the darkness, so there's day and night. He separates the heavens from the earth, so there's space to fill the, the sky with birds. He separates the, the land from the water, so the water can be filled with fish and that sort of stuff, and the land with vegetation and animals and humans. He separates it all out. He creates order so that things thrive within their right context. Plants reproduce with plants, by seeds, to produce other plants, not hybrid plant animals. Animals reproduce with each other. There are boundaries that are set that are, that are for the good of creation, to make it an ordered place, habitable, enjoyable sort of place. And at the end of Genesis 1, God says, he looks at his world and he says, this is good. I like it. It's how I want it to be. It's very good. But if you know the story, it goes bad. Genesis chapter 3, the first man and woman decide that they want to be like God. They want to sort of break down that barrier between God and humans and become like God, knowing, determining good and evil, decide for themselves what they want to do, what's right and what isn't right, and things go pear-shaped. How bad does it get? When Genesis chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. And that's sort of as bad as you can think of, isn't it? If you've got children, you know that kids tend to have a bit of a fight, but the worst thing that could happen in your house, even in, in your life, would be one of your children killing another child. Cain kills Abel. One of his descendants, Lamech, boasts that he's taken vengeance on 77 people, uh, as if that was a good thing. And then we come to chapters 5 and 6 that we're looking at today, the first bit of, uh, of 6. And we start to see how bad the spread of evil, the spread of that rebellion, the, the corruption that's come into the world gets. In verse 5, the Lord looks on the world and he saw the wickedness of humankind 
was great in the earth and that every, every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. That's a pretty big indictment, isn't it? The, in, every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Uh, we read a little bit later that that included violence. Verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Now, what's it like today? Is this describing our world? Well, it's hard to get, get past the reality that in some sense it does describe our world. There is violence. There is wickedness. Every uh, royal commission that comes out exposes more and more of the wickedness of humanity, the exploitation um, of people with disabilities. That's the, that's the latest one of government in its corruption. We're trashing the planet. Things are bad. There is violence, war and domestic violence and sexual assault. There was a report earlier this year about universities. I work at UWA that reported on the incidence of sexual assault on university campuses, and it was shocking. And God sees it all. And this is God's report card on that generation. The in every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Every intention of their thinking that came from their hearts was evil all the time. Now, there's nothing positive in that, is there? There's no mitigating circumstances. It's helpful to realise that this is a sort of a, a, a broad-ranging report. Literally, it's the wickedness of the man was great on the earth. Humanity. Broadly speaking, this is what God saw when he looked. There are exceptions, as we will see, like Noah. But notice that the core of what goes wrong is the heart, the human heart. Now, in biblical language, the heart is not the centre of your emotions. You feel with your stomach, your guts, like you get butterflies. But with your heart, you think and desire. It's the core of your will, what you want, what you are after, what drives you, the thinking that shapes your behaviour. And here, that's what the language picks up, the intention of the thoughts of the heart. And God sees that it's wicked all the time. And what does he mean by that? He means at very least there's a bias to all of us. There's a, a, a leaning that we have towards wickedness and evil. Like lawn bowls. You ever tried lawn bowls? Even young people are trying it sometimes these days. And the, the thing with the lawn bowl, if you don't know, is it, it's got a bias. It, it goes in a direction. It will always break away from what's true and straight. doesn't matter how you try and bowl it. It'll go, go crooked. That, that's the genius of it. But this is what they're saying about a human heart, our hearts. We have that sort of bias. Why do we do evil? No one reckons humans never do evil. We all recognise something of what humans do that's evil. But the explanations are, are very varied and, and around the university campus almost every faculty has an explanation for it. Some say it's to do with ignorance. If we just educated people better, they would no longer be evil. If they really knew that smoking caused cancer, they'd stop smoking. Education would solve it. But these are most educated people in the world and they're still evil. 
Others say, well, it's the environment you grow up in. It's your family. They, they sort of impart evil to you. You, you inherit it from their behaviour. Because you live in a house where there's, there's friction and, uh, and conflict, and so you become someone who uh, engages in friction and uh, uh, conflict. Or it's the bigger structures of our education system, our capitalism. But what the Bible's saying is, yes, there is an effect of those things, but they're not the real cause. Jesus puts his finger on it in that second reading. It's from the human heart comes evil desire, adultery, rage, anger, murder. It's not something outside us that causes it, us to do that. It comes from within. It's sort of like explaining floods. If you say, you know, why is there a flood? Well, you could say, well, it's flooded because they haven't built big enough gutters. It's flooded because we've taken the vegetation off the land and so the water just flows freely. But, but that's not the cause of floods, is it? The cause of floods is rain. And the cause of evil is the human heart. Those other things may exacerbate it, they may restrain it, but ultimately it comes from us. Interestingly, after the flood, God says the same thing about human hearts. Their intention is always evil in chapter 8. What's that saying? It's not saying that humans aren't capable of doing anything that's good, but it is saying that it's never sort of properly good. Just imagine for a minute that you had no self-control and no societal constraints of what others expect of you. What would you do? If you just let your heart run free and all your desires expressed and live them out, what would you be like? Well, I know what I'd be like because I know I've got to suppress much of what comes out of my heart. I've got to try and stop it because I know that what comes out of my heart is selfish and violent and exploitative. I use other people. I do it in my imagination. Now, I know you're better than me, but I don't think you're actually that different to me, are you? We are at heart selfish. We are at heart self-centred and rebellious. And our instinctive reactions to things often reveal that. What's your first reaction when you hear news of, what, interest rate hikes? Isn't it, how does that affect me? It's just what we do, isn't it? It's not, how does it affect other people? How does that affect me? What, what's it going to do to my bank balance? How much more interest will I need to pay? When you look at a group photo, whose face do you look for first? It's always yours, isn't it? Did I do my hair properly that day? Did it catch me at the right time? There is this biased selfishness about all of us that then flows out into how we instinctively treat others. And God looks at the world of those days and said, every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. There's something wrong, corrupted, about everything that comes from our hearts. And God sees it. He sees our hearts. He knows our thoughts and the ugliness of it. This is so different to chapter 1, isn't it? Good, very good. Every inclination is evil. And it causes God a real sadness. Verse 6 of chapter 6, the Lord was sorry he had made humankind on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. Uh, uh, there's a sadness, there's a regret. Uh, the word it grieved him it, it 
talks about an anguish of heart, a, a mixture of rage and anguish even. One of the students at uni recently told me that his mum had begun an affair with one of her work colleagues and had taken off with him to England, leaving his dad and the kids here in anguish. And I tried to get a, a sort of sense of how he was feeling about it. And it was like this. There was some anger in it, rightly so, that his mum could just abandon the family and go and do her own thing like that. And anguish. Feeling the deep pain. Now, some people sort of balk at the idea of God regretting. He regretted that he'd made humankind. Because surely God knew what was going to happen. And he did. But he still regretted it. And it's interesting as you read these early chapters of Genesis that God sometimes is pictured as, you almost say, naive. There's a sort of feigned naivety to God. Back in chapter 4, when Cain has killed Abel, God says to, to Cain, where's your brother? As if God doesn't know where his brother is. Cain says, what are you on about? Am I my brother's keeper? And then God says, your brother's blood is crying to me. God knew all along that it was true, but in his relationship with us, he, he, he will often engage us because he is genuinely moved. There is an emotional response of God to what happened. Yes, he, he knows it's going to happen, and yet he has this regret and anguish at what has happened. A rage, even. He's slow to anger. He says he's going to destroy the world, but it takes another 500 years or so, sorry, 100 years before he actually does it. He's very slow to anger. But he does respond with genuine emotion. And he promises to sort of uncreate his creation. I'll blot out from the earth the human beings I've created, people together with animals, creeping things, birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I've made them. And the flood, which I presume you'll be looking at in the coming weeks, is sort of an uncreation. All those uh, uh, distinctions God has set, particularly between water and land, are, are then all confused again. It becomes chaos again, so that God can start sort of like a new creation with Noah. But it's a new creation that doesn't prove really any different to the first one. God says he will destroy. One of the temptations I think we have is to sort of think that God will never act in judgment. God is too nice. He hasn't got the, the guts to do it. It's all just bluff. It's a threat. But he did flood the world and destroy humanity. He will bring judgment again. But it's not total. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. He seems a different sort of person to the rest of humanity. Righteous, blameless, he walked with God. It's an interesting description, isn't it? He walked with God. There's something about daily life. Like Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening, disrupted, but that's what life was like to start with. So Noah walked with God. It's a relationship of closeness, of openness, of trust, of not going his own way, unlike the sin that entered the world. Now, that's sort of the climax of the section, but I want to go back to the bit before it where we're told in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4 about this sons of God who saw the daughters of, of men, found them very attractive, 
and decided to marry them and have children by them. Now, it's a little strange. It's, it's one of these sort of, you feel like you're in a book like The Lord of the Rings. There's giants, there's uh, funny beings that you don't know what to do with, the sons of God, who are they? And we're not given much information. It, it, it's pretty cryptic and, and, skip, uh, and sketchy. It seems like the sons of God are probably angels, angelic beings, not part of this human creation, and they, they cross the boundary between heaven and earth. They come and find the daughters of women attractive, which is right. They are attractive, aren't they? Um, but they do what they shouldn't do. They, they cross the barriers. They create chaos between heaven and earth. And, and God is not happy with that. He responds in verse 3. The Lord said, my spirit will not abide in mortals forever. It seems like there's a, a sense in which they're, they're trying to bring immortality to the world. Their days shall be 120 years. Again, it's not quite clear. Does he mean 120 years till the flood? Or the lifespan of humans will be reduced to 120 years? I think it's probably the second. It's about lifespan. Now, 120 years is actually quite a long time for us, isn't it? Anybody reached that milestone yet? <laughs> it's actually the very, very upper limit of Guinness Book of Records, isn't it? We find getting to 60 hard enough. Um, but what God is saying is he, he, he won't allow that sort of reach towards immortality. He will limit it and restrict it because evil brings bad. And so let's go back to the next bit, chapter 5, the genealogy. Thanks for reading it, Kathy. It's not easy to read. It's not easy to listen to, is it, because it's so repetitive. So-and-so... You know, had, uh, at this year, he, this age, he had a child, a son, and then he lived another so many years. So what are we meant to learn from it? Well, firstly, it's worth just stepping back a minute and seeing what sort of genealogy this is. Because there's, there's two sorts of genealogies. If you've been on to, uh, uh, what's that, Ancestry.com or whatever it is, <coughs> it, it tries to help you work out your whole family tree. And if you're a grandparent or great-grandparent, You've probably done this exercise. You've got children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and you draw the whole family tree out there. And what that sort of genealogy does, the, the tree-type one, or upside-down tree, is it helps you work out the relationships between people. Ah, oh, they're, they're cousins. They're second cousins. They're aunties. They're great-aunties. The other sort of genealogy is the single line. This person to this person to this person to this person which is what this is. It doesn't tell you the whole family tree. It just traces one in each generation. And those genealogies are always about the place it ends in. That person is the one that's significant. So in the beginning of both Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, there's a genealogy of Jesus. Traces him right back to Abraham, even to Adam in, in Luke's Gospel, and God himself. Uh, because it's all about Jesus and who he is. Well, this one is about Noah. He's the last person in the genealogy, and we'll come to him in a second. But there's a couple of important things to notice on the way. It's very repetitive, isn't it? What is it we're meant to see in the repetition? The numbers change, 100, 120, 800, 900, whatever. But what every uh, generation finishes with is the refrain, and he died. 
whether they live 800 years, 900 years, 952 years, and he died. Death is running rampant. That's what's happening in God's creation. God warned Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And now we see that playing out. None of these, no matter how long they lived, and some of them were extraordinary lengths of, of age, but none of them can escape the enemy of death. And so every generation finishes with this tragic note. He died. He died. He died. But there's one exception. And with every repetition like this where there's a pattern, always look for the breaks in the pattern. And the one that breaks the pattern is Enoch. Verse 21 to 23. Uh, Enoch walked with God. Then he was no more because God took him. There was one person who wasn't defeated and overcome by death. He didn't live out his years and then get buried. God took him to himself. Again, we have this idea he walked with God. There was a relationship. There was a personal connection. God was his God. He walked with him day by day, year by year, decade by decade, and then God took him. And as you're reading this, you're meant to pick up that it is different, that there might be hope. There might be hope that somehow death won't be the total victor over everybody. And you might even think, oh, if it happened to Enoch, surely it's going to happen to his son as well. But Methuselah, he dies. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve first went AWOL, went, went wild, there's a note of hope. And it's cryptic. God says to the serpent in Genesis 3, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. One of your offspring, one of your seed, a son, will crush the serpent who's deceived you and led you astray. It won't be straightforward, but his head, the serpent's head, will be crushed. And the next chapters of Genesis are all asking this question, who... Who's going to be the serpent crusher? Which son, which, which child, which generation are we going to find the one who comes that God provides to crush the head of the serpent? <coughs> and you might think, I hope it's Enoch. But it wasn't Enoch. Methuselah dies. He, he's not the serpent crusher. And when Noah is born at the end of chapter 4, this is what... Uh, uh, um, sorry, the end of chapter 5. Uh, this is what is said of Noah. This is a, another one of the breaks in the pattern. He named him Noah and said, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed, the, sorry, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the toil of our hands. Do you hear the echoes of chapter 3? God curses the earth, the ground, and says to the man, Life and work is going to be hard. It's going to be toil now. From the ground you were taken to the ground you'll return. And Lamech, the, the father of, of Noah, is hoping and praying that Noah will be the one to undo the curse, to make life good again the way it was meant to be, to crush the serpent and defeat death. 
And so the whole of chapter 5 has this longing hanging over it. This longing that somewhere, some, some person, some son of Eve will be the serpent crusher. That will take us out of the curse of sin. We're groaning in pain and longing. And the groaning is in the chapters. He died, he died, he died. And there's longing. Enoch, he didn't die. Maybe there's hope for some of us, but we need someone not just to survive death, we need somebody to crush death. Which puts us forward thousands of years beyond Noah. Of course, Noah survives the flood miraculously, but he dies. And over thousands of years of human history, the pyramids of Egypt were built, empires of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greek and Rome and the Qin Dynasty in China and the Vedic um, in India, they come and go. And within Israel, God's people, this hope is harboured. It's, it's nurtured that one day somebody will come who will crush the serpent, who will defeat death. Someone will come who will change the tagline at the end of every person's life, and he died, and she died. Not just that some will be like Enoch, but many, multitudes will be like Enoch. And, and that hope fueled the prophets. Let me read to you from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? This sheet, this, this canopy that covers us all. And he died and she died. The prophets looked forward to the day when that would be reversed, when death would be thrown out, not us thrown out. And in Jeremiah 31, God gives him a, a prophecy of the day of a new covenant. And when the new covenant comes, God will write his law in our hearts. So the core of our being, the core of, which leads us into evil, the, the impulses that take us to evil, he will light, write his law there so that we are changed and transformed under a new covenant. And thousands of years after Enoch and Noah, Jesus gathered his disciples together on the night before he was crucified. And as he gave them to drink from a cup of wine, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I'm the one who's come to crush the serpent. I'm the one who's come to undo the curse on the world. I'm the one who's come to roll up death and throw it in the bin. The next day he was dead himself. But three days later he was alive, resurrected, having defeated death. The first fruits of the resurrection. A few weeks later he poured out his spirit on humanity. The spirit that writes God's law in our hearts, regenerating us, making us new and different people. Genesis 5 and 6 is depressing read, isn't it? I hope you felt some of the weight of it this morning. And as you read the Old Testament, in one sense, that depression just keeps adding. God chooses Israel, and what's Israel like? Well, God does everything to make them his people. 
to, to bind them to himself as his people, them as their God, and it never sticks. It never works. They just keep, they're, they're biased. They keep going off track, worshipping idols, being disloyal to God. But Jesus has come. And all that this chap, those chapters look forward to in hope, we know has come in the Lord Jesus. If you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to do two things? To recognise the accuracy of the diagnosis, that the inclination of the thoughts of our hearts is towards evil. That is true of all of us. But I want you to do something second. Recognise Jesus. Because he's the only one in all of history who can give you hope in that situation, who can turn that around. Nobody else has defeated death. Muhammad hasn't. Buddha hasn't. Albanese hasn't. I don't expect he will. They killed Jesus and he came back to life, real physical life. Is there anybody else who can give you hope? Hope that your epitaph and she died and he died is not the last word of your life. Jesus is the only one who can do it. Explore him. And that diagnosis, you long for a new heart, don't you? That you'd be a different person who doesn't have to stop yourself going wrong. And God's Spirit will start that process now and complete it one day. If you are a Christian, it's really the same thing, isn't it? Because there are days when you feel like chaos and death is the victor, don't you? Life is chaotic and, and, and you feel your mortality and it grips you and it, it scares us, doesn't it? One day I'll be in the cemetery and my kids will be without me and my grandkids, I, I won't be here. Jesus has defeated death. What those generations didn't experience and long for, we know Christ has come. Be assured. And when you're frustrated with your inclinations, you feel the bias. It's just there. You, you can't help it. You, you want to stop it. You want to eradicate it. When you feel that, remember that God's Spirit has already started His work. And one day it'll be complete. You'll be a person whose inclinations are not towards evil. You won't have to exercise this rigid self-control to not damage the people around you. Because Jesus, by His Spirit, will have changed you. Amen.